Hello, I'm Andrew Gentile. And I'm Ariana. And you're listening to Behind the Flicks. This show is all about me sharing as many facts as I know about filmmaking and directors, a behind-the-scenes info about movies and whatnot, to Ariana. And you'll join us for the ride. Today, we'll be going to part two of our conversation with Joseph McBride. But first, Ariana, can we get a review of this episode's film? A review of this episode's film is Rock and Roll High School, featuring the Ramones, <laughs> and amongst many, many other great uh, actors and actresses. Um, this movie is so much fun to watch. Um, I think I mentioned it just it makes so many absurd promises to you, and then it follows through on them every step of the movie. I mean, the editing style is really fun and quick. Uh, the characters are super lively, and they connect with each other pretty easily. Um, I mean, the band that's featured in it, the Ramones, the music is fantastic. And the way that they act in the movie just adds a level of absurdity to it that is just... It's just so much fun to watch. I can't get over um, how glorious it is. And it's got a very, you know, campy 80s feel to it, too. It was made in the 70s, I mean, but go on. 70s, thank you. Um and you just, you can't go wrong with that. <laughs> uh, it's just, uh, it's all around a good movie. And I, um, and I would, uh, I gave this one an A too. Yay. It's, some, it's, it's so rewatchable and enjoyable. It's like something you could turn on every year and never get sick of it. Exactly. It's like, it's like so densely packed with jokes. Yeah. And character and, uh, song and, and you know, music has great music in it. Great music. Yeah. Who's your favorite character? Ooh, my favorite character from uh, Rock and Roll High School. I mean, it's Riff, right? I mean, she's too yeah. much fun to get over, and she's a, such a good friend. And um, I mean, both the girls are really good friends to each other, but I feel like Riff is more forward about it, which is cool. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my favorite character. Oh, yeah. You go wait. Ahead. Go on. I take that back. My favorite character is the principal. Yeah, I was gonna. I think I was gonna say that too. Oh, she's fantastic. Why is she your favorite? I mean, I mean, she, uh, strictness. I like, like it, it, it. Like I like, I like characters. I think I like characters who are so strict. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Same. It's because it's. I mean, it's a, a level of absurdity, right? Like how strict she gets and how like deep rooted the, the the hatred goes yeah. <laughs> and the way she plays it is just it's hilarious it's so much fun to watch i love characters like that against rock and roll that's the yeah. thing you know <laughs> you know i also i also sorry if i can amend my statement um, yes i think what i'm gonna say is i like characters who are unnecessarily strict that's funny and it's funny because the reason that they're strict is is totally nonsensical I, th yeah. I think that's the funniest, one of the funniest kinds of characters. Their motivations are nonsensical, and they're just strict, and that combination makes it funny. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it takes a, a special kind of actor to play a role like that. Like, because if you don't, can't pull from anything that feels like legitimate reason, you just kind of have to be whatever that personality trait is, I yeah. guess, and then totally embrace it, like, 100% plus, you know, foot on the throttle it's a fantastic film and it's uh, so much fun yeah i remember seeing this uh well i think we get into this at the podcast right mm -hmm. about how i saw it at the castro theater uh mm -hmm. um 
the Casco Theater had an ad for a restoration of Rock and Roll High School and um, like a restored digital version. And, um, you know, I was just chatting with Professor McBride during his office hours. And Professor McBride, of course, is one of the co-screenwriters of the uh, movie. And I said to him, hey, Professor McBride, guess what? Uh, guess what's playing at the Castro Theater? And he said, what? And he has posters of some of his movies that he's been involved in in his office. So I pointed to Rock and Roll High School and he said, oh, no kidding. And so uh, he, uh, he, he uh, went, I, I, I was saying, I'm going. And, uh, and so he went and I was able to tell him how much I like the movie afterwards. Last time on the podcast, I introduced Joseph McBride, but left out one of his key credentials, uh, which is he is a professor at San Francisco State University. Um, you know, growing up, I, uh, loved probably just as much as the movie as the movies. If I'm being honest, I loved the bonus features growing up and, uh, Professor McBride, uh, was always meant, was, you know, uh, has been on bonus features for years in movies, uh, he's on the criteria, tons of criterions for Orson Welles, the Magnificent Ambersons. Uh, Blu-ray. He's on uh, Chimes at Midnight, Blu-ray, uh, all uh, the Othello, Blu-ray, all these different things. Um, and it's really, and you know, so to me, I was just a genuine fan before I'd even met the guy. Um, and I felt as though I had three reasons to go to SF State. One was the prestige of the film school. Uh, two was, uh, I always wanted to live in the city. Uh, and three was him, uh, because, you know, I loved movies and I, lo- and I felt like, okay, here's a professor who I really feel like is somebody I really want to learn from. I, I feel like, um, I, I feel like that he, he's probably the most qualified film professor in the world because he has worked with Orson Welles. He's written movies. He's um, he's a historian. He's a critic. I mean, he's done all these things, and now he's at my at a university like near me teaching. You know, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's like, well, how can I pass that up? And so, yeah. and I knew he would be brilliant. Uh, what I didn't expect was just how crazy generous he is. Yeah. I mean, he's just so generous with his time and his uh, knowledge. And, um, and uh, w- like, within the first two weeks of meeting him, I was like, I, you know, he had undergraduate TAs working with him. And uh, I thought to myself, well, I would really love to be one of his TAs. That would be fantastic, you know. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking that maybe, you know, if I got on his radar, that hopefully he would maybe someday let me be a TA. Two weeks into the semester, I was working on my midterm essay, and I showed him some of my notes. And I'll never forget this. He said, you're clearly a good writer. Will, will you be my TA, one of my TAs next semester? And no joke, that's probably the proudest moment of my life. Uh, because I was hold, I was, again, no exaggeration. I was holding back tears because I felt like, okay, here's somebody who, who takes the craft seriously, who's accomplished a lot. 
and he's saying I'm a good writer, and he and you know he thinks I'm worth investing time into. And that that really meant so much to me. That means so much to me. Um, and so I, I I still I still really marvel at the the generosity that uh, you know he displayed, and uh, and it still makes me feel really special when I think about it. Yeah, yeah, it's a rare uh, occurrence for us to get validated by someone we respect so much. I mean, that's like the goal, you know, to earn the respect of people you respect. Yeah. I mean, you obviously made a, a distinct impression on him, and for him to, you know, step up and recognize you for that, I mean, I can imagine that was a big moment. That's really cool. It was wonderful. I take the craft of filmmaking seriously, and he takes the craft of filmmaking seriously. He's accomplished a lot, yeah. and I, I have so much I want to accomplish. And uh, for him to tell me, okay, you have a, you have a shot to do good, you know, it, it's huge. It's huge, you know. Yeah. As a reminder to our listeners, his upcoming books are Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge, coming in October of this year, as well as an updated edition of Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, coming in 2022. You can pre-order the former on Columbia University Press website and the latter on Amazon. Now let's go to part two of our interview with Joseph McBride, in which we discuss the 1979 comedy musical Rock and Roll High School. So toward, towards the end uh, of uh, Wells' uh, life, uh, he was, well, okay, it could be argued most of his life he was an independent filmmaker. He was, um, as was... That's what I argue in my book. Yeah, that's kind of the theme of the book. And I borrowed that from Douglas Gomery. I always like to give credit where it's due. He was a college friend of mine. He's a good scholar. And he said Wells was always an independent filmmaker, even when he worked briefly for major studios. He functioned like an independent filmmaker, you know. Speaking of independent filmmaking, Roger Corman, um, could we talk about uh, what ha- two two things? Could we talk about how you came from? Uh, I, am I am I right? You stopped filming in '76, Other Side of the Wind, and then it's '79, Rock and Roll High School. Could you talk about? Well, '78 um, was really when we shot Rock and Roll High School. It came out okay. in April '79, but it, okay. you know the filming was uh, in a brief. It took about three weeks to film it in, in the Jeez. the late fall of uh, 78. Uh, Roger puts inhuman schedules on people. And the <laughs> poor director, Alan Arkish, collapsed in the last week of shooting on the set because he, he was, you know, working 18 hours a day and eating TV dinners. And uh, when he was shooting the titled musical number on the in the gym, he collapsed and... and uh, had to be taken to a hospital and Joe Dante was called at a moment's notice and took over the filming of the last three days or whatever it was. And uh, Joe had worked on the original uh, plans for the film with Alan. And then they brought me in as, as the screenwriter to make sense of it. And I added a plot and characters to their kind of vague notions. But, and then they, they brought in a couple of other guys to work on the script. But anyway, uh, Inhuman three week schedule but in 76, it was early 76, we finished shooting The Other Side of the Wind. Yeah, Wells pretty much wrapped everything he had to do. There were just a, a few shots that were left that had to be filled in later in post-production. Uh, in terms of making their films, uh, Roger Corman, uh, Alan Arkish, Orson Welles, they, they, it can be said that they those two camps are a little different in terms of the styles of the films that they make. 
Yeah, um, yes and no. I mean, they're both guerrilla, both guerrilla filmmakers in their own way. Roger Corman, uh, the reason I worked for him, I was trying to break into the film industry and I was writing screenplays, trying to sell them, and I wasn't getting anywhere. And the major studios were kind of closed to new people when I arrived in 73 and then I moved there full-time in 74. Uh, but Roger Corman had his own little company. He broke off from American International, formed New World Pictures, and he was making these low-budget drive-in movies, basically. And he was hiring young, talented people, you know, writers, directors, and actors, and, and camera people, and whatever. And he was the only guy in town hiring young people, basically, you know, at the major studios. If, as I always say, if your father wasn't a cinematographer, forget it. You know, it was, it was partly the unions were, you know, strict about, they didn't want newcomers. It was just really hard to get in uh, and everybody was old and, you know, but there are all these talented young people out there. And Roger was so smart. He knew that you could get these people. They're all eager and willing to work hard and long hours. And also he could get them for no money. This is part of his, and Wells was a bit like this too, that he didn't pay much. But it was the privilege of making a film. And when you're new, you're willing to do stuff for almost nothing. I think when I, one, another piece of advice I'll give, when I started writing articles for film magazines, I didn't get paid for a couple of years. But you should get paid after a while, after two or three years at least. Uh, the pay is never really great, but I, you know, uh, it's demeaning not to get paid anything. But uh, to give you an example, what how cheap Roger is, he's a legend for being cheap. Um, that's why he's able to make movies for very low budgets. He doesn't pay people and he cuts corners, but he's a genius at that. But Alan Arkish and Joe Dante co-directed their first film called Hollywood Boulevard, which I'm in. And um, I didn't get paid, of course, for my little scene. Uh, took about three minutes of film. But I, I asked these guys, the, reason, the way they got to make this film they were dying to make a film. They were they were the trailer department. They were cutting trailers, and they kept saying to Roger, "Can't we make a film?" You know, and um, so uh, jo John Davison, who was the head of publicity there, wanted to be a producer, and he, he said to Roger, "What if we make a film that's cheaper than any other film you ever made?" And um, he said, "I can make a film for under sixty thousand dollars." And the way he he said we could do it is make a movie about a low budget production company. And we can intercut footage from other movies like car chase, <laughs> car chases and bank robberies and stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a big chunk of the movie is taken from other New World pictures and then shoot the other scenes around it. And they wound up shooting it for 58000 but they spent $6,000 on a special effect of the Hollywood sign falling on Mary Warrenoff, which was a wonderful ending. But <laughs> so it came out a little over the thing, but they shot it real cheap. I asked Joe recently how much they got paid for directing. He said $83 each. I mean, this is incredible, isn't it? I don't know how he came up with, oh, $83. We'll give you $83 to direct this movie. I mean, that is insane. Right. Um, and I, at the time, there was Chuck Griffith, who was the writer for Roger, who wrote Little Shop of Horrors and Bucket of Blood and a lot of wonderful scripts. But he was like Roger's slave and... I don't know what Roger paid him. He kept him going because Chuck would run out of money and Roger would give him a couple hundred bucks. But um, he was directing a film for Roger and I asked the editor, how's it going? And she said, well, not too well. It's going real slow because Chuck isn't coming into the editing room very much. And I said, why not? And she said, well, he doesn't have gas for his car. <laughs> so this can work against you. That's kind of 
Pennywise and Pound Foolish, pay the director enough so he has gas for his car, for God's sake, so he can work on your film, you know. And so people resent this after a while. Roger once said, um, you know, if you work for me too often, you have no talent. In other words, like the people who work for him move on to bigger and better things. But they start off, uh, you know, willing to do anything to get going and so so then alan uh arkish loves rock and roll he's a big music fan so he wanted to do a film about young people that had something to do with rock and roll but he didn't have a plot and he and joe another way roger is super cheap is he used to be a signatory to the writers guild of america and i'm a member of that and i got in through writing scripts for roger uh but what he would do is if if you hired a uh, writers guild member in those days you had to pay eight thousand dollars for an original script but if it was a rewrite you could pay four thousand so he would he got joe and alan to dictate a script into a tape recorder for two days and some secretary typed it up and he gave gave them each two hundred dollars or whatever and they handed me this thing which was really terrible i mean it was just kids goofing around at a high school had no plot no, no point to it and they said if you can this is a friday they said if you can come up with a plot by monday we'll hire you as a screenwriter <laughs> so this was kind of a rush thing but fortunately one thing being a newspaper guy taught me is to think fast and move fast because you're on deadline all the time so i went home and i thought well you know writers always have a storehouse of ideas and one one idea that i thought of with my father in 1928 led a student strike at his high school in Superior, Wisconsin, because some beloved female teacher had been fired. And so he led the kids out on a strike for a month. And this caused national attention. Apparently, it had never happened before. And they won the strike. The teacher was reinstated. And But in those days, the students were so nice, they offered to go back to school in the summer to make up for the lost time. <laughs> Today, they wouldn't. <laughs> but I thought, there's an interesting plot there, you know, somewhere. But I thought, it's a little mild for the 70s, you know. And, but I had it in my head, I like to combine things. And then I thought, well, how about doing that? Because it gives a sort of political dimension to this story. It's not just goofing around. And then I thought, well, why would they go out on strike? Um, firing a teacher, okay. Uh, why would they fire the teacher? Um, the teacher is into rock and roll, and the principal is this really uh, square uh, authoritarian person. And since I went to Catholic high schools and grade schools, I was familiar with the authoritarian uh, personality. So um, uh, it's about a principal who is uh, mean and cruel to the kids and and fascistic. And so that adds a lot of uh, political dimension. But then I thought, uh, I had covered in 1970 on the Wisconsin State Journal, the students blew up a building on campus as part of the anti-war protests. They blew up the Army Math Research Center, which was doing uh, planning for bombing raids in Vietnam, but they killed a graduate student. And uh, this was a terrible event. It helped end the anti-war movement because it turned people off. The more moderate people were turned off by that and the Greenwich Village bombing. Uh, but I thought, okay, why don't we have the students blow up the high school at the end? Yeah. And I thought that would be a great finale. And so I came in with this plot. And I also bar- stole a couple of ideas from If and Zero for Conduct, a couple of movies about rebellious kids. And I, that, those, I think, kind of made me think, 
you know, let's, instead of just showing them picketing, let's show them doing something violent, you know. Mm. And then I thought of the bombing of the school. I came in on Monday and they said, hey, great, that's terrific, you know. And then, but, <laughs> but Alan, yeah, I got the job and then I wrote five drafts of it. But Alan at one point said, um, you know, I don't know if we should have them blow up the school because it'll make the kids seem unsympathetic. And so I had to persuade him to do that. And I always tell my screenwriting students, you have to kind of persuade directors. I use a certain language of how to play with their minds. And I thought, how am I going to get him to go along with this? Um, this is what the movie is about. Roger later said the whole reason he agreed to do this movie was he thought it was cool to blow up the school at the end. <laughs> and uh, it is a memorable scene. But anyway, um, I, I had my girlfriend at the time was a journalist and she was she had been on the set of a movie called Mouse Packs, which came out as Over the Edge that Jonathan Kaplan was directing. He was a former New World director who had moved on to a major studio and it was a serious drama about kids rebelling in their suburb against uh, boredom and oppression and to to mollify them the parents build a little rec center that they despise the kids burn it down at the end of the film and it's sad you know it's a sad film and she told me about this and i thought aha uh -huh, okay i got the idea. so i went in and i told alan i said you know jonathan kaplan is doing this film for major studio and they burned down this little building at the end and uh, i said we have to top jonathan kaplan because <laughs> i knew that all the new world directors hated the directors who had graduated to the big time you know they were envious so i said we have to top jonathan kaplan we have to make a bigger explosion at the end and we'll blow up a, a whole school you know and he said yeah great great we'll do that you know so that's how i sold him on that idea you have to do that kind of thing and manipulate the director and but then the denouement was um he started telling people uh, when the film came out that he had thought of the ending because mm -hmm. back in high school when he would get bored, he'd look out the window and fantasize about blowing up his school. <laughs> and I called him when he said that and I said, Alan, you know that's not true. That You never said that to me when we were planning it. As a matter of fact, you tried to tell me you didn't want to do that. And I said, every time you say that, I'm going to put a story in the press saying you're lying. <laughs> He, he did that for like 40 years. He kept lying about it. Oh, my gosh. Because directors, a lot of the weaker directors, a great director wouldn't do that. John Ford wouldn't claim he thought up the searchers or something. But uh, a second-rate director has to feel he came up with everything. Yeah. You know, because it's, it's a sign of um, insecurity about what a director does. You know, it's it's um, you have to be the writer as well. But a good director knows that you can give credit to writers. It doesn't diminish your your credit. Like Howard Hawks told me, I said, why don't you take credit on the writing of your films? Because he always contributed. Yeah. And he said, because if I did, I couldn't get such good writers to work with me. And I thought, <laughs> what a, what a smart thing to say. Yeah. But Alan had to claim that he thought it up, you know, and uh, he couldn't just say Joe McBride had this idea and blah blah blah. Alan did a wonderful job directing the film, but he kept yeah. saying this. And finally, after about 40 years, on some of one of the DVD reissues of the film, he said Joe McBride had the idea for the ending. I was really happy he finally said that, so I kind of forgave him, and I wrote him a note. And, and then he started doing it again. <laughs> and so I, then I said, okay, I've had it with this guy, and I wrote him a note saying I never want to talk to you again. And, uh, you know, you're just impossible, you know. And, yeah, and then it's I got a collaboration for a reason. Credit where credits do is never bad. It would make them look better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Sure, because as Frank Capra told me, uh, he's like Orson Welles. He would get ideas from 
crew guys and stuff and he said the director always gets the credit anyway <laughs> so, I mean you know nobody knows about writers so but if you give an interview it doesn't hurt you to say you know, the writer thought of this and the actor thought of that and um, you know and uh, it's just it's not a zero-sum game but it, it right. too often is in the film world and and what happened with Capra was good writers wouldn't work with him anymore because he took credit for their work all the time and that's I mean I wouldn't oh. work with Alan Arkish again and that's what happens uh, when you make a film. So that kind of soured the experience to some extent. But I got nice notes back from the two young actresses who are now middle-aged uh, ladies, very nice ladies. And they both said, oh, geez, we're sorry to hear that you and Alan are having a disagreement because the film turned out so well and we're so happy with it. And they were both great in the film. Day Young and PJ Souls are both wonderful in the film. You know. Okay, so Vince Lombardi High, uh, the blowing up sequence. Of, could you describe filming it? Oh yeah, that was that's an amazing story. Um, originally, Alan is it, Arkish, is it is it legal to tell that story? Because well, it's so it's crazy. We didn't do anything technically illegal, although I think right. if we did it again. I might do some things a little differently, but right. um, I don't think Alan understands the meaning of that scene. But I'll I'll go into that in a minute. But when when we were planning the film, he said to Roger, "Of course, we're going to do that with the miniature, right?" Roger said, "Are you kidding? Miniatures are expensive. You know, you got to blow it up." <laughs> blow it up for real <laughs> this is the way roger thinks so what they did was they rented a uh, high school for a thousand dollars for a weekend which was a catholic high school that had been uh, closed because of earthquake retrofitting it was in watts and this priest uh, they gave him a thousand dollars of course they didn't tell him what they were going to do right that's what film companies always do that's not very nice but that's you know you, you don't say we're going to blow up your high school so then they um we had a, a i don't know 100 200 extras from some local high school that they bust in from orange county i guess and then the ramones and, and some of the actors and this was all scheduled for a night in december 1978 and it was supposed to we we're supposed to blow up the school at 10 o'clock p.m i guess and then the kids were going to get on the bus and go home and the next morning they had their sat exams at like eight o'clock in the morning <laughs> And so they kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed because it was complicated. And Mike, Mike Fennell, the producer, managed to keep the kids there with by hook or by crook. One way he actually did it, I found out, was he turned the clocks back. They were waiting inside the school. He kept turning the clocks back so they were fooled about what time it was. And But they didn't they didn't get on the buses till 3 in the morning because the scene was shot at 3 in the morning. And then they Jeez. got on the – and as Mike and uh, Alan like to joke uh, – the, we ruined their lives because they all failed the SAT exam probably because they didn't have any sleep. You know? <laughs> but anyway, uh, <laughs> they're in the movie. But um, so we, we did this scene and then uh, I'm an old newspaper guy and when I used to cover riots for three years in Madison, I would always arrive at the location ahead of time and look around like I'd go to the next block or two and, and look at the, the layout where I would escape from. If the cops came this way, I'd run this way. And if the students came this way, I'd run this way. And I would stand here to take notes. You know, I always had the scene sort of scoped out like a battlefield, you know. And so I, I looked around that afternoon when the special effects guy was setting up this scene. And the way he did it was he had this flash powder in the windows and on the roof. And it has like an electrical charge you put powder in a tray, like in, in the window of a building and on, along the rooftop, and it has an electrical wire that's attached to a 
thing where you press the button at the right time and then it causes a spark that causes this flash powder to erupt and it bursts into flame real fast and, and the flame goes up but it dies down real fast too and it, it's not supposed to cause too much damage but i was kind of concerned that he was putting a lot of flash powder in the windows and the roof you know and he was this old guy who's wearing a gimme cap and he had a big burn scar on his face he was a special effects guy and i thought this does not inspire confidence that this special <laughs> effects guy has this big burn scar on his face so i began thinking i'm gonna stand far away from the scene because somebody might get hurt and we had policemen there i don't know if we had firemen because you're supposed to if you do that kind of thing you're supposed to have some fire people and police people but um today what i would do especially after the twilight zone crash, you know, I would have gone to the fire marshal and said, you know, I don't think this is very safe. And, you know, I, you really should do that. But I, I just stood across the street for my own safety. <laughs> and, um, and uh, so at three in the morning, they also didn't tell the local residents they were going to do this gigantic explosion, which is not nice. And so at three in the morning, they, they, they had five cameras, they set off, this explosion and it was gigantic. I knew it would be gigantic. Alan later says on, on the audio commentary, says, I had no idea it would be such a big explosion, but I did, you know. I mean, he said it was much bigger than I planned. But, you know, I had checked it out. And um, so this gigantic fireball came from the school and it blew out the windows of the school and it, the glass was flying all over people. Fortunately, nobody got seriously hurt. And um, Nobody got uh, seriously hurt? Well, I don't know if anybody, somebody must have gotten hurt with flying glass. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't hear about any injuries, but I didn't, okay, go, I didn't go around checking. But I think I would have heard if there had been something bad. But, yeah. you know, glass was flying. It wasn't fake glass. It was real glass. Wow. And then, uh, um, then the uh, shrubbery caught fire, like the trees and the bushes caught on fire. And, uh, I mean, it makes for a spectacular scene. And they had five cameras, and uh, one or two were in slow motion. And um, there was a shot of the American flag. I saw the rushes where the flag on the roof caught on fire and tumbled in slow motion very slowly down. I thought it was a great shot. And I said to Alan, what a great shot, that American flag falling down. And he shook his head and he said, too symbolic. And, you know, this is kind of disappointing to me that, yeah, it was symbolic. I mean, this is like, this movie is about, uh, there was a book on, um, cult movies and said this is the only American mainstream American film in which a major American institution is destroyed and nobody is punished and that's true it's a very anarchic film but I Alan thinks that the ending was supposed to celebrate violence and I I, I wrote the way I thought of it was revolutions start out for good reasons and people go out on strike and then the authorities push back and then it gets out of control and then people start violent things and that was my commentary on that I, I had seen that happen a lot in, in uh, student protests and things and at the Chicago convention and and um, that's what I thought the point of the ending was but Alan put in this scene I was kind of bothered when I saw the uh, the first screening of it there's it cuts to this disc jockey who's in the film and he's he says well there you go uh, you know, that's the end of Rock and Roll High School. And then he looks right at the camera with his microphone. He says, if you want this to happen at your school, just call Screamin' Steve. I'm in the phone book under Screamin'. <laughs> so it's kind of like inviting people to blow up their school. And I thought, this is, this is 
kind of irresponsible and not exactly what the movie's about. But that's what Alan thinks the movie is about is, hey, let's encourage people to blow up their school. But um, I will compliment him on, it was a great scene. <laughs> but also um, the networks wouldn't show the film because of that. And they said, we'll, we'll consider, there were you know, three major networks at the time. They said, we'll consider it if you shoot a new ending. And Alan refused commendably to reshoot it. And so it, it played finally on MTV. It was the first full-length film to play on MTV, which was a real coup, except that by that time, once it played on MTV, no theaters were showed anymore because everybody had seen it. And actually, I should back up. Um, Roger didn't know how to sell this unusual film. And so he dumped it. His usual pattern was to dump a film into the uh, southwestern states in drive-ins and neighborhood theaters you know, like um, Grand Theft Auto or the nurses movies or whatever they were and just let them play for a week or two and then move them from city to city and then eventually they'd get to the, you know, big cities. So he did that. He opened Rock and Roll High School in April 79 in places like the theater where Lee Harvey Oswald was captured in uh, Dallas, Oak Cliff, Texas theater had its world premiere there. I, was, I thought that was kind of cool. Um, <laughs> But in, in many other places too, but it bombed because, you know, I mean, the ads were good. They were designed by some Mad Magazine illustrator and it showed the school blowing up, but uh, they didn't really um, know how to market it properly. It was an unusual film. It should have started maybe smaller and found out. So it kind of died and Roger uh, sort of semi gave up on it. But then Siskel and Ebert in Chicago had this show, you know, uh, where they would review movies on TV and they, they liked it and they said it was really good. And it got picked up for um, a uh, midnight screening at some Chicago theater. That was a thing in those days for cult kind of films. They'd show them at midnight screenings on a Friday night or something. And, and it started playing It played for like a year in Chicago. It became a cult hit. And a cult film is sort of a film that has died at the box office, but it has a following. And, um, but it kept playing for a long time until MTV played it and then nobody would play it. But it, it started playing at other uh, venues in LA and other cities as a cult classic, you know. But the good thing about the film is that it keeps coming back on home video and in uh, DVD and Blu-ray. And, and they restored it at one point because it was getting kind of scratchy and, and all that. Uh, 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 Andrew saw it with me at the Castro Theater, and they had an original print where it sounds cool, but it was in terrible shape, right? Oh, I wasn't at that screening. I was at the restored screening. Oh, okay. Oh, you saw the restored. Okay, because there was – that's right. There was an earlier screening at the Castro, and, you know, a 1979 Metrocolor film, it looked faded, and it was all scratchy, but it didn't matter because it sort of was funky, and the audience kind of got into it, and punk rock is funky. It's a punk rock musical with the Ramones who really make the film. I think the Ramones really make the film because yeah. they're so fabulous and so wonderful. It's their only yeah. film as stars, yeah. aside from some documentaries that they're in. But, you know, they, they were... How did they get attached to this film? This is a question that I've had for, probably for later, but since we're on yeah. the subject. <laughs> well, that's an important question because, you know, that casting is so important for a film. And in this film... When I was writing it, I said, now, who's going to play this rock group? Because the idea was that a rock group shows up at the school and helps foment trouble because the kids are into this rock group and the principal doesn't like it. And um, 
you know, it was kind of a spoof of 1950s rock movies, which back in those days, I'm old enough to remember when rock and roll started, that adults thought rock and roll was the cause of trouble among kids. You know, they weren't looking at the real <laughs> the real causes. They yeah. were blaming rock and roll for getting the kids to go crazy. But um, Alan said, well, we don't know who the group will be, so just write the group arrives, and then we'll deal with that later. And so they, they offered it to a number of groups uh, such as Cheap Trick, I guess, and Todd Rundgren, and um, there were several groups that turned it down for one reason or another. And then the Ramones, Alan now says, I love the Ramones, and I was always a big fan. The, the reality is that Jane Alsobrook was one of the people who worked on the film, and Alan didn't know who the Ramones were, but she did. And she oh was gosh, the she was the one who had the job of licensing music for the film, and it has forty five songs, which is astonishing for a two hundred eighty thousand dollar film. You couldn't do that today because the the licensing fees for songs are astronomical now. Mm -hmm. And we even have a Paul McCartney song under the credits. There was uh, he wrote that for Heaven Can Wait, the Warren Beatty film. It's called Did We Meet Somewhere Before. It's about reincarnation, and the Ramones manager knew Paul McCartney and wings and they let us use the song for five hundred dollars if we would not give them credit you know they just wanted they didn't want their name on it and so of course they put their name in the ads you know <laughs> but, so it has an original paul mccartney song which is kind of nice but then they have a lot of other classic rock and roll songs but anyway so the jane also said hey the ramones um you know would be a good group they were very fringy and kind of you know they're kind of strange they they did songs that the radio stations wouldn't play like uh, songs about child abuse and glue sniffing and things that were interesting social problems and issues, you know. Yeah. That, that's one reason I like them because they dug into painful things, you know, and, and um, yeah. Teenage Lobotomy is a great song, you know. And I, I, I kind of identified with Ramones, anybody who reads my, my memoir, Broken Places, like Andrew did, will know why because I had a mental breakdown when I was a teenager because of social and sexual and religious oppression and a physical breakdown but the Ramones were considered really strange guys and so the normal girls in Queens wouldn't go out with them so they would go to the local mental hospital to uh, pick up schizophrenic girls and take them out on, on a date they told that to Rolling Stone I thought wow that's really great you know I mean I I could relate to that, you know, because my first girlfriend was schizophrenic, whatever that means, and um, she was she was terrific. But you know, the, the, the Ramones were outside the normal society, and who wants to be part of normal society anyway? Yeah. And that's what punk rock is all about: is uh, being weird and abnormal. And and um, so they were perfect for this film because they are the kind of group that a that parents wouldn't like, you know. Yeah. And that's part of what rock and roll is all about: is offending your parents and teachers <laughs> and, and so if you had some kind of more middle of the road group it wouldn't have been that good yeah. so, and also they were willing to work for almost nothing they got $25,000 which is not much for you know a group um, but they liked Roger Corman films too they liked films like um, Attack of the Crab Monsters and those cheesy Roger <laughs> Corman films and say so, Roger Corman film wow cool you know they didn't disdain doing this like some of these groups probably looked down on the project 
So we got them, and they were just dynamite. And then they were, their music is great. I love their music. And Alan does this daring thing. He kind of stops the plot for about 22 minutes in the middle of the film and has a whole concert of the Ramones, yeah. which I was an extra in. You know, it was, we shot it all in one day, which was pretty amazing, like an eight, 20-hour day or something. Um, but but the funny thing is, Alan had the idea they'd be like the Beatles, like in Hard Day's Night, when you see the Beatles are very charming and witty and funny, and and the Ramones arrived and they they could barely talk. They're kind of monosyllabic guys. They're kind of strange dudes, you know. And Joey Ramone was a genius, but he was socially, I don't know what his condition was, but he wasn't very socially adept, you know, and, and he wouldn't say much. And I, I was sitting with them. People asked me what they were like. I was on the set for three days because I played a member of the school board. And our green room was the principal's office at the school. And I would sit there with them. And I was reading a biography of General MacArthur. And they had a little black and white portable TV. And they were watching soap operas. And that was, you know, we were all in the room. <laughs> and so I just say hi to them. And they say hi. They seem friendly. But we didn't really have any conversations. And so, that, so they they couldn't really do fancy dialogue. And so these two other guys who Alan had brought in to kind of revise the script to some extent, um, uh, that's another whole story. But anyway, uh, they kind of adapted the dialogue to fit the Ramones being monosyllabic. And, and it, it works very well. There's a wonderful scene where backstage Riff Randall comes into their dressing room and they're eating pizzas and they're... Mm -hmm. And uh, pizza, I want some. And, you know, that's about <laughs> as elaborate a line as they could do. My favorite line is just where Riff, Riff says, I've written this song for you. It's called Rock and Roll High School. And Joey says, Rock and Roll High School. You know, <laughs> I just like the way he does it. <laughs> Was it always the intention to have a real rock band? Or Yeah, yeah. And, and actually they did a um, terrible... Um, I guess you call it a remake or a sequel. I don't know what it is. I guess a sequel called Rock and Roll High School Forever a few years later. It was just an awful movie. And one reason it didn't work is that they didn't have a real band. They had Corey Feldman and some other actors put together their own little band in this high school. And it just is not the same as having a real band. I mean, and also a talented band like the Ramones. Music yeah. is fantastic. But... Um, uh, they were being cheap, and that hurt hurt that film, you know. So uh, the Ramones have never been like gigantically successful, like the Beatles or something. But they have a very dedicated cult following, and and a lot of yeah. people admire them, and so that helps keep the film coming back. People want to have this film around and see it and everything, partly because of the Ramones. And that, if it had been just some average group, the film wouldn't have worked very well, you know. Ariana, I believe you had a question about the satire. Ooh, yeah, because I, I mean, there's a lot of really wonderful, fun examples in the movie that point out that it's satirical. Mm -hmm. um, and being a writer on the film, like, what were some of, what was, like, your favorite one to, like, plug in there and why? Well, it's interesting you bring that up because my mother liked this film. My father hated this film, even though it was partly based on his own experiences. And I think that's why he didn't like it, because... He thought it'd be like a docudrama on his student strike, and he went to see it, and it was this crazy movie with the Ramones, and, and he didn't like it. But my mother was pretty hip, and she got it, and she said, you know, I liked it because I didn't realize it was, a, it was a satire, you know? And I told Alan that, and he said, satire? 
it's not a satire. I meant every word of it. And that just shows <laughs> that Alan doesn't understand what a satire is because you can mean every word of a satire. Satire is a serious thing, you know, uh, yeah. but it's, it's a form of mockery and um, destructiveness. And, uh, you know, it's an intellectual thing, uh, taking a, an attitude of uh, uh, looking down or being contemptuous toward elements of, of the storyline. And so it is satirical because it, it, it makes fun of uh, authoritarian uh, school administrations and uh, how kids rebel. And it's, it's very meta and tongue in cheek. And it refers to, you know, if you've seen any of those 50s high school films, it's kind of like a takeoff on those. And that's part of the fun. Um, what did I like? I think I liked the principal the most. Mary Warnoff yeah. is just a wonderful actress. She's really tall yeah. and she's very imposing. She looks kind of like Joan Crawford. She actually modeled her costuming on Joan Crawford with the big shoulder pads and stuff and the hairstyle. And, and she's got this deep voice and she's really a, just a smart, wonderful actress. She was an Andy Warhol actress and she's, she's extremely sophisticated. And I could relate to her because of some of the nuns that I had had to deal with were, were psychotic or fringe. I, I had a, actually an aunt who was a nun who went to see this movie with another nice nun friend of hers in Milwaukee when it opened and um, they had to be rescued at the end from a mob of teenagers who were harassing them by the, the manager of the theater had to help these poor nuns get away and so my it's not nice but the, my aunt told me she really liked the movie and i thought wow that's really strange because i thought this movie is sort of designed to be everything nuns wouldn't like you know yeah but she kept saying no i liked the movie and then her friend sister ellen kept telling me no i liked the movie and i would see them every once in a while and finally late in my aunt's life she lived to 92 i said to her now tell me the truth did you really like that movie and she smiled this little smile and she went kind of like <laughs> but I thought she was very loyal one reason I liked her she was very supportive of me she never gave me a hard time about leaving the Catholic Church or anything she just was yeah. tolerant non-judgmental nun which is really kind of wonderful you know yeah. one time she uh, wrote me an email she said I want you all to pray for so and so you know and I wrote back I said well I'll, I'll, I'll think about this person and, and hope for the best or whatever and she fired back an email to me and she said, I said, pray. You know, that's, that's the only time she ever was a little harsh, but yeah. I thought that was cute. Yeah. You know? it, was, it was over email. It's, yeah, it's over it email. It kind of counts. Yeah, she's just a wonderful lady. But, yeah. uh, but you know, I mean, she got it and, and you know, she's sophisticated. She was the dean of a college and everything. And she, she, she understood the movie and she was not a mean nun. Like I went to her um, big Jubilee ceremony and uh, I asked one of her students, she taught first grade for a long time. And I asked this guy, was she ever mean to you guys? Did he ever, she ever hit you or anything? He said, are you kidding? No, she was the nicest nun. She never hit us. She never slapped us or she didn't hit us with rulers. I was relieved to hear that. So she wasn't, yeah. she wouldn't have agreed with the kind of discipline they have in that school. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably why she liked it. She got the point that, you know, it's a serious thing. School discipline is a serious issue, and it certainly yeah. uh, it caused me a lot of pain and suffering yeah. to, to be whipped and and uh, psychologically abused. And so I was glad that we were able to uh, attack that. And satire is a good way to attack something, um, to have people laughing. George Bernard Shaw said, if you're going to tell people the truth, you better make them laugh or they'll kill you. <laughs> and so we made people laugh all through the film. Yeah. And um, that's why it's effective, I think, you know. And then the music teacher, I liked Paul Bartel's 
music teacher. I kind of designed him as, you know, because when they fired the lady at my father's school, I don't know why she got fired, but the students liked her enough to go out and strike. And so I thought, well, let's have somebody like that. And so I thought, okay, we'll have a guy who's likes rock and roll. He's a classical musical teacher, but he likes rock and roll. He's a cool guy. And so Paul, Paul Bartel, we designed the part, the part for him because he was the director who acted sometimes in and uh, he was wonderful in the film and he plays the nice teacher. I also introduced the square football player into the mixture because I thought if everybody is a rebel or goofy, you need some balance, you need some foils. And so I put in this square guy named Tom who's sort of a jock and he's a little out of it, but he wants to be cool. And I could certainly relate to that because I was a little like that myself. I wasn't a jock, but I was square. And um, I modeled him after our hotshot quarterback on our high school team. And uh, he helps the film a lot. Vince Van Patten is good. He's Because in a comedy, you need a straight character as well as the funny characters. And the girls are wonderful. And I modeled them on two girlfriends I had. Um, uh, Riff is modeled on on the girl that is the central character in The Broken Places, whose name I changed in The Broken Places, but she was a rebel and she was schizophrenic was her diagnosis. Today they would have a more sophisticated diagnosis, but she had psychological problems. And she sometimes thought she was other people. For two weeks she thought she was Barbara Streisand when I was dating her. And I had to call her Barbara and she'd go around singing people all the time and stuff. But she was brilliant. She was wonderful. And she liberated me in every way. And she was kind of like my miracle worker and freed my mind from all the stupid repressed ideas that I had. But she was a difficult, a handful too, you know, but she, she had that rebellious quality that we gave to riff. And then <clears throat> PJ souls captures that so well. And then the other girl, I thought I had a girlfriend, uh, Laurel Gilbert, who was, um, she seemed more demure, well-behaved. She's a lawyer now. And she was um, very pretty and uh, but very sexy at the same time. But she was she had that kind of interesting mixture of demure but you know, kind of smoldering personality. So I thought, let's have a, another girl like that who's kind of the model student but is actually kind of a secret rebel underneath once she gets freed from her constraints and so uh, Day Young plays this other character Kate and um, uh, I gave gave her that name and then uh, Alan named Riff after a character in West Side Story and uh, but those are those are really based on these two girlfriends I had who were quite different but I, I, I think it's one thing I tried to do and nobody picked up on this and I didn't tell anybody because once you tell people they'll stop you. <clears throat> in the 70s, it was a terrible period for women in American films. There were almost no films about women being made in Hollywood. And Truffaut, I interviewed about that, and I wanted him to try to explain that. And he said he thought it was a, a revolt against the women's movement, that Hollywood didn't know how to deal with women's liberation, as they called it. And so what they did was they shut women out of their movies altogether. And so it was a period of male buddy-buddy movies, basically, and women were hardly in the movies at all. And you can count on the fingers of one hand movies that were about women that the studios made. So I thought, well, let's make this movie about two girls, you know. And Roger Corman, to give him his due, was one of the few people who was making movies about women. He was he did these nurses' pictures and these prison pictures. They were genre films, but strong female characters. And... Um, 
um, I actually had a black, I, I said, let's have three girls. That was his formula. And one of them would be a black girl, you know. And Roger said, no. Roger is supposed to be this great liberal. And he said, let them have their own movies. I mean, could you believe this? So he vetoed that idea. But so we had these two girls. But anyway, it was about two girls. And so I thought, let's make a, a female buddy-buddy movie because nobody was doing those. And there was a movie called The Turning Point, which was a little like a female buddy-buddy movie. Anne Bancroft and Shirley MacLaine play old friends who are competing dancers. Um, but that's about it in Hollywood at the time uh, for female buddy-buddy movies. And so nobody remarked on that. They just thought, hey, these, these girls have a great relationship. And also they were not competing and trying to knife each other in the back like you see sometimes in movies about women. They were friends. And there's one scene that the two girls improvised that I think is really good where um, they both talk about Tom and Kate loves Tom. She thinks he's really cool even though he's really square. And Riff makes fun of him because he's so square. But I don't know why Alan said to the girls, just talk about Tom. And, and they did wonderful dialogue. And, and Riff is pretending that she's going to take Tom away from Kate, which is mean. And when I saw this, I thought, oh, what's going to happen? But then she, Kate gets upset and starts hitting her with a pillow. And then Riff says, no, I was just kidding. You think I would do that to you? You're my friend, you know. And that was a nice scene. And um, so they weren't really rivals. They were both friends. And they complimented each other. One was this rebel who, who was a talented songwriter. And the other one was a brilliant scientist. We, we made her a brilliant scientist so she could devise the bomb to blow up the school. And uh, another one of my favorite lines, there's – Another thing I did was, and I, again, I didn't tell people this stuff because um, Sam Arkoff used to run American International Pictures, made a lot of films about teenagers, and one of his rules was never show the parents because parents are boring and irritating. Kids don't want to go to see a movie and see their parents, you know. So I didn't show the parents except on, on, on the grounds of the school when they're blowing uh, bur burning records you see the parents kind of standing around but there's a scene where they play on the telephone they call uh, riffs kate they call kate's mother to complain the principal calls and they had francis dole who was a story editor at new world who was a wonderful person i loved working with her brilliant woman she went to oxford and everything and, and she she had a line in there i didn't write this but she said, my, my daughter, Kate, I thought she was in the basement splitting protons. You know, <laughs> I, I love that line. I don't know where it came from, but, you know, you hear Francis with her English accent doing that, that line, you know. Um, so there are a lot of funny things that just kind of made their way into the film. And that film is a collaboration. It had five writers contributing, had two directors, you know, because Joe directed some of it. And then in post-production, since Alan was uh, ill, he was told not to work on post-production. So uh, Joe and Paul Bartell did the uh, post-production, which is important. And um, Dean Cundy shot it, who, who later shot Jurassic Park. And as I think it was Alan said, uh, one shot in Jurassic Park costs more than rock and roll high school. And I mean, it was literally true. But it looks really, it looks really good, you know. I mean, you had a really top cameraman in the film, so, so there's great talent all through the film. And that's why it's great to share credit with everybody. And you know, when I say they brought in these other writers, they kept my storyline and they kept my characters. They added the character of Eagle Bauer, who is the school mocker played by Clint Howard, who I think is a funny character. Um, but otherwise, they were pretty close to my characters. Um, 
but they changed all the dialogue. And I think I write really good dialogue. I think uh, that was my best talent, but they threw out the dialogue and they put in a lot of what I thought was kind of sophomoric dialogue. Uh, and the two writers, Richard Whitley and Russ Devonch, uh, on, on one of the commentaries say, uh, we ripped off a lot of Woody Allen movies and Bob Hope movies, and, and uh, you can tell. Uh, so it's kind of, when I read the script, uh, I told a friend of mine who's an actress, I said, oh, Jesus, dialogue is really, you know, idiotic and everything. And she said, no, 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 it'll play well, it'll play well. And she was right, it plays well. And they made it goofier is what they did. Mine had moments of more seriousness mixed in with the humor. But they wanted a more strictly goofy tone and they got it with these guys. And that was probably uh, not a bad decision for the kind of movie they wanted to make. It's a very wacky totally satirical film with moments of seriousness underneath kind of you know listeners if you have any comments questions or suggestions for future episodes feel free to shoot us an email at independentcreatorstudios at gmail.com if you like this episode please write a review and subscribe to us on itunes soundcloud or youtube we'd love to hear your feedback behind the flicks was created by myself and ariana i edited this episode my name is andrew gentile this has been an independent creator studios production Thank you.